This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight we begin with another adventure of Sherlock Holmes and his trusty companion, Dr. Watson. Sherlock is a fictional private detective created by British author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes was an old-time radio show which aired from October of 1939 to July of 1947. Originally, the show starred Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. And together they starred in 220 episodes. Most are narrated by the character of Holmes' friend and biographer, Dr. John H. Watson, who usually accompanies Holmes during his investigations and often shares quarters with him at the address of 221B Baker Street, London, where many of the stories begin. Though not the first fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes is arguably the best known by the 1990s, there were already over 25,000 stage adaptations, films, television productions, and publications featuring the detective. And the Guinness World Book of Records lists him as the most portrayed literary human character in film and television history. A few fascinating details I discovered it was financial difficulties that led Holmes and Dr. Watson to share rooms together at 221B Baker Street, their residence maintained by their landlady, Mrs. Hudson. Holmes works as a detective for 23 years, with Watson assisting him for 17 of those years. And most of the stories are frame narratives written from Watson's point of view as summaries of the detective's most interesting cases. Conan Doyle repeatedly said that Holmes was inspired by the real-life figure of Joseph Bell, a surgeon at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, whom... Conan Doyle met in, 19, pardon me, in 1877 and had worked for as a clerk. Like Holmes, Bell was noted for drawing broad conclusions from minute observations. Details of Sherlock Holmes' life in Conan Doyle's stories are scarce and often vague. Nonetheless, a statement of Holmes' age as published in a story describes him as 60 years of age. And the episode tonight is entitled The Problem at Thor Bridge. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And now for our weekly visit with our good friend and host, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. You're a bit late. I've been keeping some dinner hot for you. Here, pull up your chair and, and join me. That's very nice of you. Thanks, Doctor. Are you all set with tonight's story? Yes, my boy. I'm all set, as you call it. 
As a matter of fact, I was going over my notes on the case just before you arrived. Uh, last week, you hinted that a beautiful girl figured prominently in your adventure. That's quite right, Mr. Bartell. An extremely beautiful girl. In fact, I often used to say to Sherlock Holmes that if I'd been a little younger at the time, I might... Oh, well, you haven't come here to <laughs> listen to my personal reminiscences. You want to hear the story that I called The Problem of Tor Bridge. That's what you promised us, Doctor. How did it begin? On a windy morning in October... In, 18, in the 1890s, it was. As I was dressing, I observed how the last remaining leaves were being whirled away from the solitary plane tree which graced the yard behind our Baker Street house. I descended to breakfast, prepared to find my companion in depressed spirits, for, like all great artists, he was easily impressed by his surroundings. But, to my surprise, he was in an unusually gay mood. As I entered the room, he looked up at me and, with a, with a smile... Oh. Good morning, my dear fellow. I hope you slept well. Splendidly, thank you, sir. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, you're very solicitous this morning. I, I think you must have got a new case. <laughs> Am I right? The faculty of deduction is certainly contagious. Yes, I have a new case. After a month of trivialities and stagnation, the wheels revolve once more. Good. Tell me all about it. Well, as yet, there isn't much to tell. Have you ever heard of Neil Gibson? Neil Gibson? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Something to do with gold mining, isn't he? A great deal to do with it, my dear fellow. In fact, he's considered the greatest mining magnet in the world. About five years ago, he bought a large estate in Hampshire. Perhaps you've read of the tragic death of his wife. Oh, yes, of course. I remember the case now. She was murdered by a jealous governess who was in her employ, wasn't she? That point will be decided when the lady in question, uh, Grace Dunbar, I believe her name is, comes up for trial at the forthcoming Winchester Assizes. In any case, it's hard for me to see what I can do for my client at this late date. Your client? Oh, yes. I forgot I hadn't told you. I'm getting into your involved habit of telling a story backwards. Mm. Better read this letter. came this morning. Oh, let's have a look. Dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Miss Dunbar is innocent. I can't see the finest woman in the world go to her death without doing everything possible to save her. I shall call on you at 10.30 tomorrow morning to discuss the matter yours faithfully, Neil Gibson. Good gracious me. There you have it, Watson. That is the gentleman I await. Uh, do you know anything about his dead wife? Only the, what I've been reading in the papers. Apparently she was past her prime which was the more unfortunate as this Miss Dunbar, who superintended the education of the two young children, is reputed to be a very attractive young lady. <laughs> Eternal triangle, eh? Well, where did the murder take place? On Gibson's estate in Hampshire. His wife was found in the grounds nearly half a mile from the manor house, late at night, clad in her dinner dress with a shawl over her shoulders and a revolver bullet through her brain. Any weapon found near her? No, there were no clues found at the scene of the crime. Well, what made them suspect the governess? Well, in the first place... There was some very incriminating evidence. A revolver with one discharged chamber, the caliber corresponding with a bullet in the dead woman's head, was found on the floor in Miss Dunbar's wardrobe. Oh, was it? Pretty damaging evidence, Holmes. Mm, so the coroner thought. And to make the case even blacker against Miss Dunbar, the dead woman had a note on her making an appointment at that very spot. And the note was signed by the governess. It seems obvious that the girl's guilty. And the motive's clear. Mr. Gibson would be a great catch for a young girl. Love, fortune, power, all dependent on one life. Possibly, Watson, but circumstantial evidence can be very misleading at times. Ah, there's a gentleman in question, unless I'm very much mistaken, considerably before his time. I can see him from the window here. Formidable-looking fellow. Must be well over six foot tall. <laughs> Judging by the way he's wrenching at that doorbell, he's a man with a violent temper. Mrs. Hudson's opening the door to him now. Uh, meet him on the stairs, will you, old chap? It'll save Mrs. Hudson a journey. Uh, sure. 
Up here, sir. Thank you, Mr. Hudson. All right. Are you Mr. Sherlock Holmes? No, no, indeed. I'm his colleague, Dr. Watson. Uh, come along in, won't you? Mr. Neil Gibson, I presume? That's right. So you're the great Sherlock Holmes, huh? <laughs> The adjective is your own, Mr. Gibson. Sit down, won't you? By the way, you must speak uh, quite freely in front of Dr. Watson. Hmm. Well, I may as well begin by telling you that money means nothing to me in this case. You can burn it if it's any use to you in lighting the truth. Miss Dunbar is innocent, and it's up to you to prove it. Just name your fee. Now, Mr. Gibson, my professional charges are on a fixed scale. I don't vary them, except when I omit them altogether. Very well. I imagine that you've read the newspaper reports of the coroner's inquest. Yes, very thoroughly. I don't see that I can add anything that'll help you. But if there are any questions you'd like to ask, I'll answer them. Well, thank you. First, now what were the exact relations between you and Miss Dunbar? I suppose you're within your rights in asking such questions, Mr. Holmes? We will agree to suppose so, shall we? Then I can assure you that my relations with Miss Dunbar were always those of an employer towards a young lady with whom he never conversed or even saw, except in the company of his children. Oh. Rather a busy man, Mr. Gibson, and I have no time or taste for aimless conversation. I wish you good morning. What the devil do you mean by this, Mr. Holmes? My dear sir, the case is difficult enough without your giving me false information. Meaning that I lie, sir? I was trying to express it as delicately as possible, but <clears throat> if you insist on the word, I won't contradict you. Why, you confound... Don't be noisy, Mr. Gibson. Please don't be noisy. I find that after breakfast, even the smallest argument is unsettling. I suggest that a stroll in the morning air and a little quiet thought will be greatly to your advantage. I suppose I can't make you take the case, <clears throat> but you've done yourself no good this morning, Mr. Holmes. I've broken stronger men than you. No man ever crossed me and was the better for it. Good morning, Mr. Gibson. You've a great deal yet to learn. <laughs> well, my soul, Holmes, you were unusually severe with him. <laughs> I dislike liars, Watson, and I cannot tolerate arrogance, particularly when it's coupled with great wealth. Well, how did you know about his relations with the governor? I didn't. It was pure bluff. Bluff? <laughs> it certainly worked. Think he'll come back? Oh, of course he will. He needs my help too badly. He'll probably change his mind before he's halfway down the stairs. Come in. <clears throat> ah, <laughs> Mr. Gibson. Just saying to Dr. Watson that I was certain you'd be back. I've been thinking it over, Mr. Holmes, and I feel that perhaps I was hasty in taking your remarks amiss. Just the same, I can assure you that the relations between Miss Dunbar and me really don't affect this case. Surely that is for me to decide, Mr. Gibson. You see, Mr. Gibson, my friend is like a doctor. He wants every symptom before he can give his diagnosis. Fire away, Mr. Holmes. What is it you want to know? The truth. I can give it to you in very few words. To begin with, I met my wife when I was gold mining in Brazil. Uh, your wife was Brazilian by birth, wasn't she, sir? Yes, doctor, and very beautiful. Well, to make a long story short, I fell in love and married her and brought her to England. After a few years, I realized that we had nothing, absolutely nothing in common. And then I suppose this young governess, Miss Dunbar, arrived on the scene. That's right, Mr. Holmes. Well... The story should be obvious to you from there. You, uh, fell in love with this girl, I suppose, sir. Who could help it? Did you suggest marriage to her? Yes. Though I knew that my wife would never divorce me. I see. Then you made an utterly insincere proposition to her. Now, look here, Mr. Holmes. I came to you on a question of evidence, not of morals. I'm not asking for your criticism. It's only the young lady's sake that, uh, forces me to touch your case at all. Now, tell me, sir... Uh, what is your own opinion as to Miss Dunbar's guilt? It's very black against her. I can't deny that. One explanation of the tragedy did come into my head, Mr. Holmes. I give it to you for what it's worth. Pray continue, Mr. Gibson. My wife was bitterly jealous. She was half crazy with hatred. She might have planned to murder Miss Dunbar, or we'll say to threaten the girl with a revolver and so frighten her into leaving us. There might have been a struggle in which the gun exploded and gone off and shot my wife, who was mm -hmm. holding it. 
Well, that possibility has already occurred to me. It's the only obvious alternative to deliberate murder. The revolver, Holmes. It was found on the floor of the governess's wardrobe. Well, Mr. Gibson, I should like to examine your house and the scene of the murder as soon as possible. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. Sergeant Coventry of the local police is still down there. He'll give you any help you may need. Excellent. Watson, old fellow, I'm out of the timetable. We're catching the next fast train to Winchester. to have someone else on the case, I'd rather have you, Mr. Holmes. The yard gets called in, then, then we local police loses all credit for success. Generally gets blamed for the failures. Though I've heard that you play straight. <laughs> I know appear in the matter at all, Sergeant Coventry. If I can clear it up, I don't ask to even have my name mentioned. Oh, that's handsome of you, I'm sure, and I, I know your friend Dr. Watson can be trusted, too. Oh, don't worry, my dear fellow. We won't steal any of your thunder. It's oh, nice and friendly of you, Doctor. Well, come on, gentlemen. I'll walk you down to the bridge. That's where we found Mrs. Gibson's body. It's not far from the house here. Well, I must say, Mr. Gibson has a beautiful estate. It must be 60 or, or 70 acres. Oh, nearly twice that, Doctor. The woods back of the house there belongs to him, too. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Sergeant? There's a question I'd like to ask you. A question I wouldn't ask anyone else. Then please ask it. Don't you think there might be a case against Mr. Gibson himself, sir? I've been considering that possibility. But there, Miss Dunbar's a bit of all right. If you ask me, he wanted his wife out of the way, and the pistol she was shot with was his pistol, you know. Oh, uh, was, uh, was that fact uh, proven? Yes, Doctor. It was one of a pair that he had. One of a pair? Where's the other? Well, Mr. Gibson has a lot of firearms. We never quite matched that particular pistol. But the box was made for two. Well, if it was one of a pair, surely you'd be able to match it. Well, we have them all laid out at the house if you want to look them over. And we'll do that later. Ah, this, I presume, is Tor Bridge. That's right, sir. Found Mrs. Gibson's body lying right here at the approach to the bridge. I see. I gathered from the newspaper reports that the shot was fired at very close quarters. Yes, sir, very close. Near the right temple, wasn't it? Just behind it, sir. How did the body lie, Sergeant? Oh, on spec, Doctor. No trace of a struggle, no marks, no weapon. The note from Miss Dunbar was clutched in her left hand. Clutched, you say? Yes, sir. We, we could hardly open the fingers to get at it. Ah, that's of greatest importance. It excludes the idea that anyone could have placed the note there after death in order to furnish a false clue. What did the note say, Sergeant? Little enough, Doctor. It just said, uh, I will be at Tor Bridge at 9 o'clock, and it was signed Grace Dunbar. Miss Dunbar admit writing it? Oh, yes, sir. What was her explanation? She wouldn't say nothing. Said she was saving her defense for the trial. Yes, it seems odd that Mrs. Gibson was still clutching that note. Seems perfectly natural to me. Oh, come now, old fellow. Argue the thing out logically. If the letter is genuine, it was certainly received sometime before the tragedy, say an hour or two. Why then was the dead woman still clasping it in her left hand? Why should she carry it so carefully? She certainly didn't need to refer to the note at all at the interview. Doesn't it strike you as rather strange? Well, now you put it that way, it does seem a little peculiar. Hello. Did you notice this, Sergeant? Oh, you mean that chip out of that stone on the underside of the parapet of the bridge, sir? Yes, I noticed it. Uh, didn't think nothing of it, though. Well, it's a very large chip. Yes, but it's been done recently. That is how the stone work is white just here. It took some violence to do that. Hand me a cane, Watson, will you? Here you are, Thanks. Yes. It's a hard knock. 
And in a curious place, too. But it's 15 feet from where we found the body, Mr. Dell. Yes, Holmes, I don't see how it could have any connection with Mrs. Gibson's oh, murder. It hasn't. But it's a point worth noting. There were no footprints, you say, Sergeant? None, Mr. Holmes. The ground was as hard as iron. It's been a very dry summer, and we haven't had any rain to speak yes, of this. Pity. Mm. Well, Sergeant, I'm much obliged to you, and now I think we'll get back to the house. Right. Uh, Cesar will show you where the firearms are, sir. Oh, uh, who is Cesar? Funny kind of a bloke, Brazilian he is. Brazilian, eh? Like Mrs. Gibson? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Uh, comes from the same town that she does, as a matter of fact. Something very fishy about him, if you ask me. Now, if you'll excuse me, gentlemen, I'm going to take a little stroll around the grounds. You started me on a new train of thought in this case, Mr. Holmes. Oh, oh, oh. I'm delighted, Sergeant. I'll get back to the house. <laughs> firearms in Mr. Gibson's possession, eh, Cesar? Mm. Except for the revolver that is missing from the case. Yes, so I say I see him. Well, I've never seen such a collection of guns and revolvers in my life. Mr. Gibson had many enemies, senor. He always sleep with a loaded pistol beside his bed. She's a man of great violence. There have been times when all of us were afraid of him. Did you ever witness physical violence towards Mrs. Gibson? No, senor. I cannot say that I have. But I have heard him say many terrible things to her. She would taunt her in front of we servants. I have heard him do it many times. Thank you, Cesar. That will be all. Muito bem, senor. You know, Holmes, I still think the case against Miss Dunbar looks very black. I should agree with you if it were not for one fact. The finding of the revolver in her wardrobe. On the soul, Holmes, that seems to me the, the strongest evidence of all. I think not, old chap. Huh? We must look for consistency. Where there is a, a want of it, we must suspect deception. I don't quite follow you. Suppose for a moment that we visualize you in the character of a woman who in cold, premeditated fashion is about to murder a rival. You've planned it. A note has been written. The victim has come. You have a, a weapon. The crime is well done. It has been workmanlike and complete. You mean to tell me that after carrying out so crafty a crime, you'd be so stupid as to forget to fling the incriminating revolver to the bottom of the stream? Or perhaps in the... Uh, dense reeds that border it, would you carefully carry it home and put it in the first place that would be searched? Your wardrobe? Well, perhaps in the excitement of no. the moment, one... No, my dear chap, I won't admit that's even possible. When a crime is coolly premeditated, then the means of covering it are coolly premeditated well, also. Well, then if Miss Dunbar didn't shoot Mrs. Gibson, who the devil did? I hope I can give you the answer to that question, Watson, when we've made one further visit. Oh, Lord, where are we going now? To prison, old chap. Prison? Yes, we are going to Winchester Prison to call on Miss Dunbar. I'm certain that the key to this strange mystery lies in her hands. to Dr. Watson and tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Problem of Tor Bridge. Well, uh, Doctor, did you go to Winchester Prison and see Miss Dunbar? We did, Mr. Bartell. An hour later, I found the two of us sitting in a dank and gloomy cell, talking to one of the most beautiful girls that I've ever seen. Her bright, flashing eyes and her air of quiet confidence seemed sadly out of place in such a setting. Holmes spoke to her quietly, 
soothing her. tell us of your true relations with the dead woman. She hated me, Mr. Holmes. She hated me with all the passion of her distorted mind. Please tell us exactly what happened on the evening of Mrs. Gibson's death. Well, I, I received a note from her in the morning. A note imploring me to meet her at the bridge after dinner that night. She said she had something important to say to me. Did you keep that note, Miss Dunbar? No, Doctor. She, well, she asked me to destroy the note, so I burned it in the schoolroom grate. I saw no reason for such secrecy, but, well, I, I did as she asked. Mm, and yet she kept your reply very carefully. It's interesting. Tell me what happened when you met her that night. When I reached the bridge, she was waiting for me. I, I won't tell you what she said, but she poured out her whole wild fury and burning horrible words. I did not. I couldn't. It was dreadful even to look at her. She was like an insane woman, standing there screaming disgusting insults at me. I, I put my hands to my ears and rushed away. Well, where was she standing when, when you left her? Within a few yards of the spot where her body was found later. And yet, presuming she met her death shortly after you left her, you heard no shot. No. No, I heard mm. nothing. But I was so upset, Mr. Holmes, that I rushed straight back to my room. Did you leave it again that night? Yes. When the alarm came that Mrs. Gibson was dead, I ran out with the others. Did you see, uh, Mr. Gibson? Yes, Doctor. He had just returned from the bridge when I saw him. He had sent for the doctor and the police. Uh, this pistol that you found in your room, have you ever seen it before? Never, Mr. Holmes, I swear it. When was it found, Miss Dunbar? Next morning, when the police made their search. It was on the floor of my wardrobe where I keep my shoes. Mm, you had no idea how long it had been there. Well, it hadn't been there the morning before. How do you know? Because I had tidied up the wardrobe that day. I see. Then someone must have come into your room and placed the pistol there in order to incriminate you. I'm certain of it. Oh, well, uh, when could they have done that? Well, it, it, it could have been at mealtime or when I was in the schoolroom with the children. Yes. Miss Dunbar, on exam examining the scene of Mrs. Gibson's death, I noticed that a piece of stonework on the underside of the parapet of the bridge had been broken away. Can you suggest any possible explanation for that? Oh, surely it must have been a mere coincidence, Mr. Holmes. Possibly. But why should it appear at the very time of the tragedy and at the very place? Could it possibly be the... Why, yes, of course. Idiot. Why didn't I think of it before? Come along, Watson. Where are we going, Holmes? Back to Thorbridge, old fellow. As fast as we can get there. What have you found out, Mr. Holmes? The answer to this mystery, I hope, my dear young lady. You will get news before the day is out. And meanwhile, take my assurance that the clouds are lifting and that the light of truth is breaking through. <laughs> You're soon back here. What have you found out? Get on a few moments. Uh, you got my message? Uh, yes, sir. Here you are. All a twine. What you wanted for, I can't imagine. Uh, you'll soon see, Sergeant. Uh, Watson, I uh, have some recollection that you usually go armed on these excursions of ours. Yes, I'm carrying my revolver. Why? Uh, give it to me, old chap, will you? Uh, thanks. Thank I, I believe your revolver may have a very intimate connection with the mystery we're investigating. <laughs> You're joking. Now, Watson, I'm very serious. Huh? I have a test to make. If the test is successful, Miss Dunbar will be free before nightfall, and the test will depend on the conduct of this revolver of yours. Yes, I'll take the precaution of unloading it. Uh-huh. There we are. Now, Sergeant, ball of twine, please. Wish I knew what you was up to, sir. I tie one into the twine like this to the handle of the revolver. 
so. Sergeant, see if you can find me a heavy stone, will you? Oh, Roger, sir. Holmes, what are you doing? Trying to reconstruct the killing of Mrs. Gibson. But you've seen me miss the mark before, Watson. I have an instinct for such things, and yet it has sometimes played me false. It seemed a certainty when it first flashed across my mind in Miss Dunbar's cell. But one drawback of an active mind is that one can always conceive alternative explanations which would make our scent a false one. And yet, oh well, we can but try. Isn't I still, Mr. Holmes? Thank you, Sergeant. Yes, now, sir. I tie the other end of the twine to the stone. Wait a minute. Like that. Splendid. Uh, Sergeant, will you please take the stone and stretch the twine across the parapet of the bridge there so that the stone will swing just clear of the water on the other side of the bridge? Right, sir. I'll stand on the spot where Mrs. Gibson's body was found. That's it, Sergeant. Over the parapet. How's that, Mr. Rowe? The stone swinging about eight feet above the water. Splendid. Now, Watson, watch closely. I raise the revolver to my head. Careful, Holmes, careful. Nobody, old chap's not loaded. Now, let us imagine I am the late Mrs. Gibson. I raise the revolver to my head and fire it. Instantly, my fingers release that grip and... There's your answer, Watson. Great. Scott, the revolver flashed back out of your hand. Struck the parapet's bridge and then the weight of the stone flipped it over into the water. Was there ever a more exact demonstration? Come on, old fellow. You're a blooming magician, Mr. Holmes. That's what you are. A blooming magician. Look at that. There's the second chip on the stonework, the parapet here. Same size as the first. And the murder of Mrs. Gibson... It wasn't murder at all. It was suicide. What? We can follow the various steps quite clearly. A note was extracted very cleverly from Miss Dunbar. A note which made it appear that she had chosen the scene of the crime. Mrs. Gibson, in her anxiety that the note should be discovered, somewhat overdid it by holding it in her hand to the last. That alone should have excited my suspicions earlier than it did. So she stole one of her husband's revolvers and planted the other one in Miss Dunbar's wardrobe. Exactly. After discharging one of the cartridges, which she could easily do in the woods without attracting suspicion, she then went down to the bridge, where she contrived this exceedingly ingenious method of getting rid of her weapon. When Miss Dunbar appeared, she used her last breath in pouring out her hatred, and then, when the girl had left, carried out her terrible purpose. In the missile report... You'll find it uh, with the aid of a grappling hook at the bottom of the stream, and also the stone and the string. Uh, with which this vindictive woman attempted to, to disguise her own crime and fasten a charge of murder on an innocent victim. Yes, Sergeant, and don't forget while you're at it that my revolver's down there, too. Oh, don't worry, Doctor. I'll get some grappling hooks right away. <laughs> I must say, Holmes, you've solved this case brilliantly. Quite brilliantly. Uh, I disagree, old chap. And I fear that you will not improve my reputation by adding the case of the Torbridge mystery to your annals. Oh, nonsense, but that's ridiculous. Oh, no, it isn't, old boy. I've been sluggish in my mind and wanting in that mixture of imagination and reality, which is the very basis of my art. I confess that the chip in the stonework was a sufficient clue to suggest the true solution, and I blame myself for not having attained it sooner. Well, Holmes, personally, I agree with the sergeant's opinion of you. Oh? What was that, old fellow? You're a blooming magician, Mr. Holmes. That's what you are, a blooming magician. <laughs> Doctor, Holmes really was a magician. That is, if you did find Mrs. Gibson's revolver and your own in the oh, stream. Oh, we found them all right. I don't think I'll tell you the story otherwise, do you? Uh, what do you take me for, anyway? Well, now that you ask, I'll tell you. I take you for a very charming gentleman, a wonderful oh, storyteller, sir. and a fine host. Oh, well, I do. Well, really, I... Well, you are a gentleman of the old school. Oh, and you do tell a fine story. 
You flatter me, you... Uh... And you are a perfect host. Oh, that mean... meal we had tonight was wonderful. Oh, it was, eh? And, um, that, that wine, what kind was it? It was Petri wine, and you know it. <laughs> and I should have known that you were leading up to something, Mr. Bartell. You should be ashamed of yourself. You will do anything to get a chance to talk about Petri wine. Oh, I can't say that I blame you. Well, honestly, Doctor, I meant everything I said. But you don't really want me to stop talking about Petri wine, do you? After all, it's worth talking about, isn't it? What other wine is made with the loving care that goes into Petri wine? Don't forget, Petri wine is made by the Petri family. Winemaking is their business. Why, they've been making wine for generations, handing down from father to son, from father to son, all their skill and knowledge and experience. You can be sure the Petri family really knows plenty about the fine art of turning luscious grapes into delicious wine. That's why, whether you want a wine for before dinner, with dinner, or for any time, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Dr. Watson, what new story are you planning to tell us next week? Well, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell an adventure that Holmes and I had amid the oriental magnificence of a Maharaja's palace in India. India? Sounds intriguing. Uh, what were you and Sherlock Holmes doing out there, Doctor? Well, we'll have to wait until uh, next week to answer that question, my boy. But I can tell you that it was one of the weirdest problems that we ever had to solve. I call the story The Vanishing Elephant. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is adapted from the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Problem of Tor Bridge. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Oh, the Petri family took the time to bring you such good wine. Oh, when you eat and when you cook, remember Petri wine. To make good food taste better, remember... Pet, pet, Petri. Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband. Time now to see what's happening in the program My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. It's time for My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. Jello, everybody. Yes, it's the Gay Family Series, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning. Transcribed and brought to you by the Jello family of desserts. J E L L. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. That's Jell-O. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O puddings. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O tap. Bioka puddings. Yes, sir. 
And now, Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper. Two people who live together and like it. As we look in on the Coopers tonight, summertime is fast approaching, and Liz has roused herself from spring fever long enough to go on a shopping spree for some beach clothes. Katie, come here a minute, will you? Yes, Mrs. Cooper, what is it? I want you to take a look at my new sundress. How do you like it? Is that it? Yes, this is what they're showing this year. Really? That's what they were hiding last year. (laughs) Oh, Katie, how do you like it? Well, it's very nice. Uh, How do you keep it up without any straps? Well, it's a new theory, Katie. It's held up by the wind from men whistling at you. (laughs) Katie, see all my new play clothes? My goodness, did you buy all those this morning? Yes, I want to look good for George. He's going to see a lot of me this summer. (laughs) He's not the only one. (laughs) I even bought one of those new French bathing suits. It's there on the bed. Well, I don't see it. Here's your slacks, pedal pushers, your beach robe, and this little green handkerchief. Well, that's funny. Oh, here it is. No wonder you couldn't see the bathing suit. It was under the handkerchief. <laughs> Are you really going to wear that? I will if George will let me. <laughs> oh, he will. Men like women in scanty bathing suits. If the women aren't their wives. A man will admire a scanty suit on a blonde at the beach, but let his wife put on that same suit, and he says, You're not going out like that, are you? How true. Oh, I forgot. The mail came a while ago. Here it is. Thanks. Anything for me? No. Oh, I never get any. Oh, here's a letter for me. Really? Yeah, see? Occupant, 321 Bundy Drive. (laughs) I think I'll change my name to Occupant Cooper, and then I'll get as much mail as George does. There's one there addressed to Mr. and Mrs. George Cooper. Oh, good. Where is it? I'm entitled to read every other line. Here. Oh, no. What's the matter? It's from Weeping Willow Ranch. You know, that dude ranch where we spent our vacation last year. Are you going there again? Over my dead body. Oh, Katie, it's awful. One week there and you understand why the willows are weeping. (laughs) The planned fun starts at six o'clock in the morning. You bound out of bed and run into breakfast. You did that? Are you kidding? I crawled out of bed and was led into breakfast. (laughs) How was the food? Oh, not food, Katie. Chuck. Chuck. Yes, and they couldn't have thought of a better name for it. Oh, Katie, George must have written asking about reservations again this year. This is an answer saying they can take us. Oh, I don't want to go there. I want to go to the beach with the Atterberries. Well, maybe you can talk Mr. Cooper into it. Why, Katie, I'd never try to talk George into anything. We'll discuss it calmly, examine the best features of both places, and then go to the one we think is best, the beach. Well, did you like your dinner, George, little baby, honey? Yes, yes, dear, it was fine Are you comfortable in that chair, George? Would you like another pillow behind your back? No, thanks 
Oh, it's no trouble at all. I'll, I'll just get another pillow and then... Liz, you... you've got so many pillows behind my back now, my head's between my knees. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, shall I get you a pair of slippers? Yes, I'll wear them on my hands. <laughs> what? Oh, you already have your slippers on, don't you, dear? Okay, Liz, what have you done? <laughs> Nothing, dear. What are you planning to do? Nothing. Look, I know all the signals. You're fattening me up for the kill. <laughs> now, let's have it. I have nothing on my mind. Really? Absolutely. Go ahead. Go to that lousy weeping willow ranch. <gasps> oh. <laughs> well, I gather from this that we heard from the ranch. Did you open the letter? Yes. It came addressed to both of us. What did it say? I only read every other line. Mm. Come on, Liz. What did every other line say? It said, Dear Saddle Pals, In reply to your letter of, Delighted to have you dig your spurs into, Our new manager and courteous waitress. <laughs> Rates this year are $20 private cottage, or $15 if you share it, with one of our new cow ponies. <laughs> Signed, The Old Wrangler. Very clever. I suppose we're going to have our yearly debate about uh, where to spend the vacation. Okay, debate. The question is, resolved that we are not going to spend our vacation at that stinky old Weeping Willow Ranch. You take a negative. Go ahead. Madam Chairman, I were the opponent and friends. I like the stinky old Weeping Willow Ranch. I think it's one of the nicest Time's up. of all... Now for the affirmative. Now, wait a minute. Oh, let's not talk about it, George. Let's just not go. Can you suggest a better place? Yes, I'd like to go to the beach. The beach? Oh, come now. You must have heard of it. <laughs> the Atterberries are going, and I thought it would be fun if we'd go, too. Well, but there's nothing to do at the beach. Oh. Everybody covers themselves with oil and lies in the sun all day, slowly turning so they'll get done all over. It's nothing but a big sandy barbecue pit. <laughs> I suppose you never heard of swimming. Well, I have, but I didn't think you did. The closest you ever came to the water was when a dog came up to you and shook himself. <laughs> you don't even know how to swim. I'll learn. I've heard that song before. Oh, but, George, your swimming suits are so cute this year, and the beach clothes are so gay and colorful. And so that's it. They got little pleats in them all around. <laughs> Liz, I'll make a bargain with you. If you learn to swim, and I mean really swim, before vacation time, we'll go to the beach. Oh, George, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. But if you don't, we'll go back to the Weeping Willow Ranch. Don't worry. I'll learn. I'll learn. And don't buy any beach clothes until this is all settled. George, even after I learn to swim and you agree to go to the beach, I'm not going to buy a thing. What? I mean it. Because I love you so much, I'll struggle along on just what I've got in my closet now. <laughs> Mrs. Cooper, what are you doing in your bathing suit? I'm going to take my swimming lesson. You found a teacher? Yes, Ralph Wood, the oldest boy from next door. He's the high school champion. Oh, there he is. I'll get it. Good morning, Mrs. Coops. <laughs> Did I get you out of the shower? No, it's all right, Mr. Wood. This is my bathing suit. You don't have to stand with your back to me. 
That's a bathing suit? Yes. Hmm. Well, are you all ready for your lesson? Yes, where's your son? Oh, he couldn't make it, but I've arranged for you to take a lesson from the person who taught him everything he knows. Who's that? Me. <laughs> oh, well, where should we go, out to the club? Oh, there's no need to go way out there. I can teach you right in your living room. Really? Well, come on, let's go around through the kitchen and come in at the shallow end. <laughs> You can learn very easily if you'll just remember that swimming is merely a matter of applied physics. Oh. <laughs> you see, when a body is immersed in water, it displaces its own weight, and by means of propulsion of a given direction, the water that is displaced in front is found to be at the back. <laughs> this is known as swimming. <laughs> Isn't there a simpler way of doing it? Well, you can jump into the water and move your arms and legs. Well, that's more like it. Are you sure you can teach me to swim here? Certainly, it's applied physics. When a body is immersed in water... I know, I know. But will it work if a body is immersed in a hardwood floor? <laughs> Why not? Well, a fair question. <laughs> you learn to swim in the living room. When you get into the water, you simply apply what you've learned. It'll be the same thing, only wetter. Wetter, yeah. <laughs> now, lie down on the floor. Okay. Now, what do I do? Uh, now, first, bring the right arm over the head and forward and down. Okay. <clears throat> Fine. Now, do the same thing with the left arm. Okay. <clears throat> Ouch. What's the matter? This ocean has splinters in it. <laughs> That's too bad. All right. Now, while you're moving your arms, you are kicking at the same time. All right. Yeah. Ouch! More splinters? No, hard water. <laughs> well, lift your feet a little. Now, try again. Uh, how does this look? Oh, wait a minute. What's the matter? I forgot to tell you to breathe. <laughs> That's okay. I went ahead and breathed anyway. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. In swimming, you breathe a different way than you ordinarily do. How? Through your ears? <laughs> no, no. You're supposed to breathe when your head is out of the water. You know, I'll bet I would have found that out anyway. <laughs> well, now, let's try it again and put everything together. Huh? All right, here I go. <clears throat> oh, fine, fine. You're doing just fine. Yeah. Hey! Hey, look at me. I swam clear across the living room. Yes. If the current hadn't been against me, I'd have made it into the dining room. Congratulations, Mrs. Cooper. You're a wonderful pupil. You mean I know how to swim? Certainly you know how to swim. Gosh, that wasn't hard at all. What have I been afraid of all these years? Come on back tomorrow, Mr. Wood, and I'll dive off the mantelpiece. <laughs> I'm home. Hi, George, baby. Give me a kiss. Mm. <laughs> What's new? What What did you do today? Oh, nothing exciting. I had a manicure, learned how to swim, marketed a uh, little. Uh, uh, uh. 
Just a minute. Learned how to swim. Yes, isn't it wonderful, George? Now we can go to the beach this summer. Uh, do you expect me to believe you learned how to swim since this morning? Yes. Mr. Wood said I have a natural talent for it. He gave me a lesson, and I just swam all over the place. Mm. How far did you swim? Oh, about as far as from here to the dining room. By yourself? All by myself. Hey, that's great, Liz. You, you weren't even afraid, huh? Afraid? I was as calm as though I'd been swimming right here in my own living room. <laughs> no kidding. That's right. I'm proud of you. It, was the water cold out at the club? I didn't notice it. I'll get it. Okay, I'll go see if dinner's ready. Hello. Hello, Mr. Cooper. This is Benjamin Wood. Well, hello, Mr. Wood. I understand you gave Liz a swimming lesson today. Uh, that's right. How'd she do? Oh, wonderfully. I called to see if she got all the splinters out. <laughs> splinters? Yeah, she picked up a big one. <laughs> Where? Right between the piano and the divan. <laughs> Say, what are you talk... Say, where did she take this lesson anyway? In your living room. It was sort of a dry run. Uh-huh. Well, she's fine, Mr. Wood. Well, that's good. Goodbye. Goodbye. Liz! Dinner's almost ready, George, and boy, am I hungry. Mm. Splashing around in the pool must have given you an appetite. Uh, swimming is what did it. That water is exhilarating, isn't it? Swimming certainly is. You should have seen me, George. I was like a little seal. Sounds more like a little lion. <laughs> a little sea lion? No. No, just plain lion. <laughs> that was Mr. Wood on the phone, Liz. Oh. <laughs> How many splinters did you average per mile? No, I didn't get very many splinters. <laughs> uh, I'm certainly surprised at the way you deceived me, Liz. I didn't. I never said I was in the water. I asked Mr. Wood if I knew how to swim, and he said yes, and I can. There's nothing to it. All right. That's good enough for me. It is? Sure. I'll meet you out at the club tomorrow afternoon, and if you can swim the length of the pool, we'll go to the beach for our vacation. Oh, give me more time, George. I've only had one lesson. Oh, no. No, you said you knew how to swim. Well, tomorrow we'll find out. I'll meet you at the club pool at 3.30. All right, I'll be there. And I'll jump in that pool and swim if it's the last thing I do. Oh, why do I say things like that? <laughs> As we return to the Coopers, it's three o'clock in the morning and all is still. All that is except Liz. From the way she is thrashing about the bed, it looks like she's having a nightmare about swimming. Stroke. 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 Oh. Well, what's the matter? Who did Stroke. that? Oh. oh, ouch. Hey, Liz. Stroke. Oh, Liz. Huh? Oh, George, save me. I'm going under. Oh, take it easy. You're Help. Joking. Save me. Save me. Oh, Liz, you got me around the neck. Help. Help. We're going down. Oh. <laughs> Fight your way to the surface. Huh? Huh? Oh, 
Oh, George, it was an awful dream. I dreamt I was in swimming, and how'd we get down here? We disappeared under the covers for the third time and sank slowly to the floor. Oh, really? <laughs> Let's swim to the surface and go back to sleep, huh? Oh, gosh, I'm afraid to. You go to sleep, George. I'll be right back. Liz, where are you going? Into the dressing room. I want to see if I have a nightgown with water wings in it. <laughs> Girl, is George here yet? No. Oh, it's no use, Iris. I'll never make it. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Chin up, girl. I brought something with me. What? Look. A pair of water wings. Oh, I thought of that, but it's no good. George would see them. They're white, and my bathing suit is black. Let's put them under your bathing suit. <laughs> under my bathing suit? Yeah, then he'd never guess. Won't I look kind of lumpy? Uh, well, let's see where we could put them. Oh, I know. You're a little sway back. What? <laughs> now, look, I don't have time for false modesty. Sway back, yes. We'll just put the water wings under your suit in the middle of your back, like this. There. And then we'll blow them up and you'll get in the water before George gets here. He won't be able to see them. Well, it might work. I can't even see them. Well, they're not blown up yet. <laughs> oh. Yeah. How are we going to blow them up? Uh... It can only be done by a midget or a Ubangi. <laughs> well, there's one idea gone. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come with me. Where? The gas station in the parking lot. They have an air hose. <laughs> now, that might work. Come on. As long as you stay in the water, George can't tell a thing. This is the first time I've gone to a gas station to get my air checked. <laughs> Good afternoon, ladies. Can I help you? Uh, can we use your air hose? Certainly. Have a flat? <laughs> uh, sort of. Where's the car? Car? Yeah, with a flat tire. What were you planning to do? Take the air over a mouthful at a time? <laughs> no, just let us use the air hose and thanks. Oh, yeah, go take care of that car. I'll be right back. Quick, Iris. Turn around. Let me get this hose down the back of your baby suit. Oh, it's cold. Hey, what are you doing? Go away. What, what are you doing? Look, just leave us alone. We're not hurting anybody. Hey, hey, look at her back. It, it's all swollen. This is fine, Iris. Put the hose away and... Ah! I'll get a doctor. Oh, never mind. It's too late now. Come on, Liz. The boys will never believe this. <laughs> well, it was a good try, Iris. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, look now. No more bright ideas, please. We've been fools, Liz. We can get George on a technicality. How? He said you had to swim the length of the pool. Yeah. He didn't say anything about not wearing something to help you. 
We could have put the water wings on the outside. Now she thinks of it. <laughs> I know. Rudolph has a life jacket he bought at the surplus store. I'll go and get it. Okay, go on. And you stall George till I get back, and I'll go as fast as I can. Well, hurry, Iris. You're all that stands between me and Weeping Willow Ranch. <laughs> All ready for the big swimming test? Oh, hello, George. Sorry I'm late, but Atterbury kept me talking about a big account. Oh, that's all right. You haven't seen Iris, have you? No. Well, let's get this over with. Come on, dive in. No, now, don't push me. I'll get in in a minute. Well, why in a minute? Well, uh, I'm just uh, hungry, that's why. I'd like something to eat first. I don't like to swim on an empty stomach. But if you eat something, you can't swim for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Liz, are you stalling? Stalling? Heavens, no. Well, then what are you waiting for? Now get in the pool and start swimming. No, George, don't. I'm not ready. Woohoo, Liz, girl. I'm ready. <laughs> Here you are, Liz. Oh, thanks, Iris. Hey, what's going on? You can't wear a life jacket. Can I? Put your arms in here, Liz. There. Fasten it, will you, Iris? Uh-huh. Liz, I'm warning you, this isn't going to count. You said swim the length of the pool. You did not say how. Now, look. Here I can... go. Whee! Oh, look at her go. <laughs> what a low-down trick. <laughs> well, George, she did fill her part of the bargain. Well, I guess she did. Well, if she cares that much about going to the beach, I guess we can go. I'll teach her to swim while we're there. Hey, look at me! Look at me! I'm swimming! Okay, Liz, you win. Hey, watch this! I'm a whale! (laughs) (laughs) Would you look at that? She's floating on her back and blowing water in the air. Hey, there's nothing to this. Do we get to go to the beach, George? Okay, we'll go. Oh, boy, this jacket's wonderful. I know, I've seen them. All you do is pull that little string on the side and they inflate. (laughs) What little string? What little string? Liz, we didn't pull a string You've really been swimming (laughs) How do you like that, George? I've really been swimming right here in the deep water Deep water! Yes, Lucille, where do we go tonight? Tonight, Robert, we're meeting a sweet girl graduate, the valedictorian of her class. A little commencement music, please, maestro. Hello, I understand you just graduated. Yep, that's right. (laughs) Well, tell me, did you graduate cum laude? How's that again? I said, did you take any honors? No. Are there some missing? Oh, forget it. Forget it? Okay, I will if you will. Put her there, boy. Oh, wait a minute. What degree did you get when you graduated? A, B, Ph, D? No, no. I got an R, A. 
R A. Yep. I said R. I said R A. I said R A G G. M M O P P. Ragma. 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 Now wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Now, what degrees did you actually get? Oh, them. Uh, let's see now. I got a, a J-E and a L-L-O. What do they stand for? What do they stand for? Oh! <laughs> well, actually, I'm an expert on Jello. Let me give you a test. Oh, what? <laughs> Now, what are the six delicious flavors? Oh. You're going to start with the hard one. Strawberry, raspberry... Oh, yeah. Cherryberry, orangeberry, lemonberry, limeberry. No. no. Strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. Right, right. Next question. What makes you think of the real ripe fruit itself? I don't know. <laughs> Jello does. It does? <laughs> yes, didn't they teach you that the flavor is locked in and can't get out till your first delicious spoonful? This is the first time I heard of it. Are you sure? Of course. Didn't they tell you to look for the big red letters on the box? No. They didn't tell me. Hey, where are you going? I'm going back to school. Good night, Bob. You have been listening to My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning, and based on characters created by Isabel Scott Rorick. Tonight's transcribed program was produced and directed by Jess Oppenheimer, who wrote the script with Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll, Jr. Original music was composed by Marlon Skiles and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. The part of Katie, the maid, was played by Ruth Parrott. Watch for Lucille Ball in Fancy Pants with Bob Hope. Be sure to listen to Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband again next week, presented by... J-E-L-L-O, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. That's Jell-O. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O puddings. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O tapioca puddings. Yes, sirree. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, where you meet Lucille Ball and my favorite husband every Sunday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.